0: I think the biggest failures would really be that we spent the first 20 years trying to come up with this legally binding framework and it just turned out that countries did not want to do that. So we lost a lot of time trying to do that and uh, perhaps we would be better off if we had changed course already earlier.
1: Johannes Erpelainen is the director and Prince Sultan bin Abdulaziz Professor of Energy, Resources, and Environment at Johns Hopkins SAIS, and the founding director of the Initiative for Sustainable Energy Policy. He is the award-winning author of four books, and as one of the world's top energy policy experts, Johannes frequently advises governments, international organizations, and the private sector on energy and environment.
2: In the past several years, addressing climate change has become an increasing priority on the global stage. However, multiple scientists and politicians have raised the alarm that current global and national initiatives are not enough to curb the adverse effects of anthropogenic climate change. With competing interests on eliminating fossil fuels on national and international levels, global frameworks to address climate change have always been difficult negotiations. This year's Conference of the Parties, or COP26, We'll aim to address how countries can implement measures to effectively curb climate change and create a more sustainable future for current and future generations. Joining us today to discuss COP26 and global climate framework is Dr. Johannes Erpelainen. All right, Dr. Erpelainen, thank you so much for joining us in the podcast today.
0: Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure.
2: So by the time that this podcast recording is released, the COP26 Climate Summit will have just started in Glasgow, Scotland. So can you give us a brief overview of what a COP conference is, what it stands for, when they started, and what the aims of these conferences are?
0: Absolutely. So COP stands for Conference of Parties, uh, and the parties that we are talking about are the the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. The basic idea of a COP is to be a global summit on climate change. So it's a multilateral meeting, which is typically held about once a year. And uh, countries from all around the world get together to discuss what to do about climate change. And really, the goal from the very beginning has been to limit climate change and uh, avoid dangerous interference with with the global climate. And that goal really hasn't changed at all since uh, 1992, when these agreements were first negotiated uh, in Rio de Janeiro at the Earth Summit.
2: So, yeah, looking at the past 25 years of conferences, like you mentioned, um, what have been some of the biggest accomplishments and failures of these COP conferences? And what have been the most important conferences?
0: I think we can start by just going through the, the timeline here. So... The United Nations Framework Convention was initially negotiated in 1992. It became a legally binding global treaty in 1994. And then that's when these uh, conferences really started. The key conferences that I would highlight are in the very beginning in 1995 in Berlin, uh, you had this kind of effort to set the stage by agreeing, for example, that uh, developing countries would not need to take any emissions commitments initially, whereas the industrialized, wealthy countries would do that. Then we, of course, had the 1997 Kyoto Protocol uh, negotiations in Kyoto, which created this legally binding framework that would have each industrialized country reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. In 2007, we then had the Bali negotiations where it was agreed that we need to turn this into a truly global agreement that has commitments for all countries, not just the wealthy industrialized countries. That negotiation didn't produce the intended result. In 2009 in Copenhagen, we had this kind of failure to produce a globally binding agreement. And then in 2015, countries came together with this non-binding, more voluntary Paris Agreement on climate change, which is today our primary framework for dealing with climate change. So if we think of accomplishments and failures, I think the biggest accomplishment is really that we have this global process, which kind of forces countries to carefully think about their climate policies, their energy policies, compare them, get a lot of media scrutiny over time. That's not quite enough. It's, it's not ideal it would be better if we had a truly binding legal treaty for everyone but it's still much better than nothing I think the biggest failures would really be that we spent the first 20 years trying to come up with this legally binding framework and it just turned out that countries did not want to do that so we lost a lot of time trying to do that and uh, perhaps we would be better off we had changed course already earlier.
1: So kind of moving on to this year's COP26 summit, who will be attending and what are key items on the agenda?
0: Really, all these COPs are attended by basically all countries in the world. There are some variations. Sometimes countries send their you know, heads of state, sometimes they just send uh, environment ministers, sometimes just diplomats, but they're basically all going to be there. And uh, on top of that, there's going to be a lot of media, civil society, uh, industry associations, and so on. It's a huge summit with tens of thousands of people in attendance. In terms of agenda, there is some work that needs to be done on the institutional side, figuring out exactly how the Paris Agreement is going to work out moving forward. But I would say that the two most important issues to be discussed is, number one, and this is the most important thing, is updating those pledges that countries made in Paris in 2015. Kind of take stock of where are we today? What are countries doing? What are they going to do next? How can we increase ambition? That, I think, is the single most important Uh, topic of discussion. And the second one, which is also very important, is climate finance. The wealthy countries made about 10 years ago a promise to provide $100 billion a year to poor countries for climate adaptation, resilience and mitigation. And that annual $100 billion was supposed to be met by 2020, which was last year. They have not reached that goal. And understandably, the poor countries are quite upset about this. So we need to see some real progress on climate finance on if we want to see more true collaboration between the wealthy and poor countries.
1: So recently it's come out that um, there will be an absence of important figures and nations at this conference. Um, can you uh, list them and... Um, In your opinion, do you think that the absence of these people will have an an impact on the success of the summit this year?
0: To be perfectly honest, I have not followed that discussion. It doesn't seem to me very important. Countries send in diplomats who have very precise instructions on what they need to do. And given the way the Paris Agreement works, they can update those promises anytime. So I I don't think that's actually uh, going to be very important for them. Uh, conference and I, I don't personally uh, spend much time following those discussions. So,
2: along not the same lines but a little bit similar lines of um, the maybe the lack of participation of some countries, but also the attitudes of countries who are going to this conference. Um, the BBC recently published um, leaked documents for revealing that nations such as Saudi Arabia, Japan, and Australia have asked the UN to quote unquote play down the need to transition from fossil fuels to renewables. So how may competing interests such as these affect the success of this conference?
0: That's a very good question. First of all, I I do want to note that there is nothing unusual about what's happening here. I would almost say that the BBC reporting is misleading here. The discussion here is really around the assessment report for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is not directly tied to this conference. It just happens to be at the same time. And second of all, this has been going on since 1992. Every time the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or IPCC puts out a report, it goes through a very extensive kind of uh, process of comments and revisions uh, by different countries. So the underlying issues are real. This discussion of how to phase out fossil fuels, who should be leading the way. How aggressively do different countries need to move? I I think that's important. But uh, the fact that countries are sharing their thoughts on these reports is just standard diplomacy. There is nothing unusual or suspicious about any of this.
1: So kind of like looking forward, um, what are the most likely outcomes of the COP26 summit? And do you think it will be a success this year, especially in the wake of the IPCC report's urgent findings? That's
0: a great question. And um, I'm going to give you the same answer that I just gave yesterday, the day before we are recording this to my undergraduate class on global environmental politics here at Hopkins, which is, it really depends. This is one of those cases where the glass is either half full or half empty. Is COP26 a success in the sense that it's definitely going to get us on track to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Celsius? No, it is not. There is a huge gap between where we need to be to meet those kind of scientifically sound targets and where we actually are today. Is it going to be a success, on the other hand, from the perspective of moving things forward, increasing ambition? Yes, most likely it is. We have already seen that countries are updating their emissions targets. They are committing to more ambitious action, and they are making progress on these issues like climate finance. So if your perspective is, are we doing enough to avoid dangerous climate change from a scientific perspective, no, we are not. We are nowhere near enough. But on the other hand, if you are an international relations scholar, you might be quite surprised at how much countries are actually doing to solve this problem. I'm a lot more optimistic about climate change today than I was just three or four years ago.
2: Okay, that's very promising to hear. Um, so, just in my recent memory, the like the last COP conference that I remember very um, like well is. The 2015 Paris um, agreements and so do you and thinking about like the impact of that and sort of the agreements that the global community came to after that conference so do, do you think that this conference will have a similar impact Do you think it will be different in its impact um, and just sort of like comparing those two conferences what do you see as like the different outcomes of this conference as opposed to the 2015 Paris one
0: absolutely so the 2015 negotiations on the Paris agreement were really about finding a new approach to climate change. The key difference between the Paris Agreement and the earlier efforts like the Kyoto Protocol is that countries make these pledges from their own perspective, and it's a bottom-up process. There is no grand design. Every country proposes a set of targets, commitments, activities. And then over time, countries compare and try to ratchet up those pledges. They're called nationally determined contributions. And what we are trying to do now in Glasgow is really do that ratcheting up. We are trying to say, okay, it's been six years. We have made some progress. We are not where we need to be What are you all going to do next? We are going to ask countries to increase their ambition level, especially in the short run. So I would say that this COP is not going to be fundamental or transformational in the way that the 2015 Paris COP was, but it is important in Continuing down that road. So, really making the Paris Agreement work. So, I do think this is an important one, especially given that we didn't have a COP last year, right? Because of the COVID 19 pandemic. So, it's very important that we now set the right direction and that countries feel the pressure to continue increasing their ambition level.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, just tying in um, this COP conference into other current current events around energy that have been happening recently that there have been widespread energy shortages in Europe, China, and beyond. And China in particular has responded to its energy shortage by reversing its plan to transition to more renewables and instead relying on an increased, an increased short-term use of coal. So how will the discussions at COP26 be affected by the global energy shortage and especially, you know, um, China's sort of reversal to using coal?
0: Absolutely. So. A good way to think about this is that, first of all, clearly the energy shortage is a very complex issue. It's a combination of rebound from COVID-19 with surging demand, some specific issues like problems with regulation, with infrastructure around the world, but also then the fact that investments are now going into this new clean infrastructure, which is not yet quite ready. Maybe as a result, we have been kind of neglecting the fossil fuel infrastructure a little bit uh, in different places. So all of this plays a role. In terms of the impact, I, I could see a few different issues that we need to consider here. One is that obviously countries are going to be very concerned about this. There is no question about it that governments are very sensitive to energy price increases. That's something that really bothers a lot of people. It's a huge shock for especially lower income households around the world so this is a legitimate and important concern and there's going to be questions asked how do we deal with these issues as we make the transition to a low carbon global economy China is a concern right so we have seen that China is obviously the biggest emitter it's uh, something like one-fourth of all emissions, all global emissions. So China is decisive for our success in climate change. And when you see these kind of energy shortages and kind of a, um, increased commitment to making sure that uh, you know coal is available for industry, it's something that could set us back um, in climate policy and it could make other countries hesitant to make additional commitments. But at the same time, We have always known that this is a long-term transition. And I think the right way to think about this is that we need to keep moving forward. We need to keep making the investments we need, but we should not neglect these short-term challenges. I think it's very dangerous to just ignore them and keep going and say everything is going to be fine. What we need to do is we need to be playing both offense and defense at the same time.
2: Right, so just to follow up on your answer, I'm wondering... Since this is these energy shortages have been in a sense a global problem, they're also a national problem, right? So, will the response to these energy shortages in China or Europe, like, will that come at a more national level, like a like a country based level, or do you think that'll come from a global framework, like the framework that, that will come out of um, the COP twenty six conference?
0: It will come almost entirely at the national level, in China. Clearly, China controls its own energy policy. There are no international agreements that can in any way prevent China from doing whatever it wants. In Europe, even though the European Union has some power, energy policy remains mostly in the hands of individual countries. So we will see different responses. And we have to remember also that the United Kingdom is no longer part of the European Union. And Brexit may have contributed to a significant extent to its uh, the, the UK's energy problem, so they are basically going to do their own thing. In general, international agreements are usually not strong enough or powerful enough to prevent countries from addressing their urgent concerns. And the Paris Agreement is specifically designed in a way that countries can make their own commitments. And as a result, it to me seems quite unlikely that international institutions would play a significant role. In this.
1: Yeah, so on that kind of vein, I guess, um, often we see global summits like these have promising rhetoric, but little tangible outcome. So, in your opinion, how effective can these global non binding agreements about climate be between governments?
0: That is a great point. And again, I need to go back here to the glasses half full or glasses half empty framing. Are these agreements effective in forcing countries to significantly accelerate climate action and by imposing binding commitments on them? No, they are not. They are weak agreements. They have very little enforcement power. And even if they had enforcement power, countries could just decide not to join or exit. As we have seen, for example, Canada did at some point with the Kyoto Protocol. Now, that doesn't mean that these agreements are useless. It's, it's very important to have this opportunity for countries to talk to each other about their commitments, to encourage it, each other to do more, to be really in the kind of public vision so people can see what countries are doing, so that climate activists can hold their governments accountable. So I think these agreements play a key role but we should not overestimate their effectiveness. They are a small but important piece of the puzzle. Much more important that, than that is what happens with clean technology development and national policies.
1: So I kind of wanted to also expand our talk to corporations. And in your opinion, like, how can governments hold corporations accountable to these global agreements?
0: That is a good question. And I think the answer to this question is a bit complicated. So let's take just a few minutes to go through this. On the one hand, I don't think there is anything complicated about holding corporations accountable in general. So if the United States has a law that says that there is a fee or a tax or a regulation of fossil fuels, then all companies in the United States will need to follow that i don't think there would be much difficulty with enforcing a law like that okay so this would apply to all oil and gas companies assuming the government is willing to do it it seems right now that there is a lot of conflict on that within the government if you look at the current negotiations between the house the senate and the biden administration but i don't think enforcement itself is going to be that difficult if there is a political agreement on this Where this does get complicated is what if democratic, liberal countries hold their fossil fuel companies accountable? Think Exxon, think BP, think Shell. But authoritarian countries like Saudi Arabia or Russia do not hold their companies accountable. This, to me, is a real concern. Because it is possible, for example, that we make real progress regulating the oil and gas industry here in the United States or in Europe, but all that does is give more power to companies like Saudi Aramco or Gazprom in Russia, right? So holding corporations accountable itself, I'm not too concerned about that, but this kind of uneven enforcement where different countries behave very differently could, in a sense, preempt some of those activities and their intended consequences.
1: Yeah, so kind of, I guess, looking forward, um, what is the future of these kinds of summits? As you said, all countries have such differing interests and, I guess, differing holds on their corporations. And will these summits be more or less important as addressing climate change increasingly affects global standards of living?
0: That's a very good question to ask. I personally don't see an alternative to these conferences. We are going to have to have some way to coordinate globally, to catalyze additional action, and to, frankly, hold governments accountable so that they don't forget about climate change. And these conferences are very important. They really bring visibility and attention to these issues. At the same time, by... Going the Paris route, we have already, in some sense, surrendered, right? We have said national sovereignty is fundamental and we are going to address climate change under that framework. We are not going to challenge countries and their national sovereignty. Okay, so I would say that these agreements will be important and these conferences will be important. They are our primary method of tracking, monitoring, and holding accountable. That's really. What these conferences do. But the action in the end will have to be at the national and even local level. We need to have countries really ramp up, step up, invest more money, create a green recovery from COVID-19, invest in clean technology and compete with each other. I would love to see the United States and China really compete very hard for global dominance in clean technology. That's the kind of competition that would, in the end, help us address this problem.
2: Dr. Uppalainen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We really appreciate your time.
0: Thanks for having me. It was a really interesting discussion, and uh, I appreciate uh, you all doing this.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.